0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar Energy, experts in solar energy management.
1: Hello, and thanks once again for joining our weekly podcast, Energy Insiders. This week, a another busy week for news. Um, a big focus on energy prices, and of course, the launch of the Tesla three or the Tesla Model three electric car, and a bunch of other developments. Joining me, as usual, is David Leach, from the analyst um, from ITK. How are you, David?
2: Ah, uh, very well, Giles, and and uh, hello to all of our uh,
1: listeners, and once again to our special guest for the week. Indeed, and um, our special guest is uh, Maria, um, Maria Um Maria, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for
1: having me. Look, um, before we get into um, some of your sort of special topics, I just want to get through the news of the week. And like, I guess over the weekend, the big thing was the launch of the Model 3. Once again, Elon Musk had a big party. Um, lots of people were invited, um, although it's in mostly um, his own staff, which is uh, growing by the minute. Uh, this time, it wasn't quite as lavish and flash um, as it had been in the past, and maybe that's because this is the uh, the mass-market model, if you can call a $50,000 car a mass-market model. Um, but this is the big taste. This is the big crunch for Tesla. Can they produce enough cars to meet demand? Um, some interesting things come out of it, David, most notably the fact that they seem to have addressed the range anxiety even though this is going to be thirty-five thousand American, the um, the standard model will have three hundred and fifty kilometres of range, which seems perfectly perfectly adequate. The um, the higher range model will have five hundred kilomet five hundred kilometre range, but bad news for Australians: we're not going to see it until two thousand and nineteen.
2: Well, Charles, that's uh, bad news for you because, as I recall, you telling me you've got you've got one on order.
1: Well, that's right. I'm just wondering what happened to my 1,500 deposits. I'm wondering if I'm gaining any interest on it. I don't think so.
2: I don't think so either. Look, the incredible thing about the Tesla Model 3, there's only really one thing that matters. The range is irrelevant. Uh, Even when the car works is to a certain extent irrelevant. The The only real question that markets care about is whether... Elon Musk and Tesla can sell the 400,000 that they've got on, taken deposits for, and that's going to require a fantastic pickup in their manufacturing capability. It's going to require the battery factory in Nevada, which last photo I saw was far from fully finished, to be up and running at full speed. So there's, um, you know, quite frankly, Tesla's got a record for three things, being incredibly innovative and in introducing products that people really love and really want. I suspect of all the household batteries getting sold in Australia, the Teslas are, are by far the biggest seller and the most economic, but its other reputation is for over-promising and under-delivering uh, as far as time schedules go.
1: Well, it does have a very, very aggressive time schedule um, in the past, um, but it probably delivers um ahead of what other people would have thought possible still. Um, Maria, what do you make of electric vehicles? Um, we seem to be trailing a bit in Australia. Are you um, are, are you interested?
0: Yeah, definitely. It's unfortunate that um, we always seem to be the last on the list to get a lot of the models that are available overseas. But the most extraordinary thing to me about this story is just how many pre-orders um, they've received globally for a car that no one's really... Um, sat in or test driven um that's a completely different way of purchasing a car so i think um you know that's something that doesn't get talked about much but they've completely changed how people go about buying the next car
1: look that's exactly right too and um um, so they've got a half a million orders. Well, they've actually sort of stopped counting and stopped releasing. We presume it's more than half a million. They do say they're going to get up to full production of about um, 10,000 a week by the end of next year, I think it is. Um, and they'll be needing to, to to meet those orders. But look, I guess the other thing is that we're starting to see um, some of the other vehicles, we're starting to see um, a lot of the other car manufacturers now turning their attention to electric vehicles. We're starting to see governments such as France and England also saying that they're going to be banning anything that um, looks remotely like um, non-electric vehicles by 2040. I would have thought that the horses already bolted on, on, on those sort of time frames, David. But um, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, every time we even talk about energy efficiency in vehicles um, in Australia, um, you know, the, the shutters come down and we start screaming about sort of carbon tax on cars.
2: Look, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. There's a big opportunity in lithium, I think, uh, around the world and probably in uh, materials like cobalt as well. In Australia, as we've remarked several times, there are no fuel emission standards, let alone any incentives for electric vehicles. Uh, save one, you get, I think, some small, very small reduction in the luxury car tax, but it's immaterial. But I think this is an area where uh, uh, cities could do, um, mayors could do a lot. For instance, one of the most popular incentives around the world and places like Norway is to offer free parking for electric vehicles. This is something that in the beginning costs the state or the council zero pretty much because there aren't any electric vehicles, but gives the people who (laughs) buy them uh, quite an incentive. Uh, We'd all like to be able to park, well not all of us, but some of us would like to park in the CVD every morning and hop out and turn up to the office uh, when everyone else has got to catch the train in, you know, it's a kind of a status symbol. Uh, in a way. Um, So there are little things that could be done uh, quite independently of waiting for the federal government, which is tying itself in knots and probably got terrorists and other important things to sort out first.
1: Yeah. look, When we were talking to, um, well, I read a story about um, a large lithium um, iron battery factory, which is planned for Darwin, which seems a strange case. But anyway, the people that were behind that were saying that Australia is actually interesting. It's probably the only country in the world where you could sort of build a wall around where well, we've already got a got a motor got, got a lot, lot of ocean and actually have all the resources necessary for the electric vehicle and the battery industry maria what are you sort of seeing in the way that businesses and other people are sort of looking at the ev opportunity
0: well in terms of businesses um i guess in more generally in terms of batteries uh i think a lot of people are interested i'd say everyone's interested um it probably doesn't make sense yet for a lot of large industry, Um, but people are definitely keeping an eye on it and it is very much front and centre.
2: Charles, I I can't see battery factories being built in Australia very easily any more than you can see car factories being built. It's, It's much cheaper to transport the lithium to China Uh, where, you know, there's a five million electric vehicle target. Australia then to uh, transport, manufacture and transport the completed batteries. Uh, Well,
1: it would be interesting to see. Um, I mean, there is a proposal for one in Darwin and there's another proposal for one in Townsville by um, Boston Energy, which is led by Bill Moss, who's the former Macquarie thing. So um, they seem to be reasonably serious about it, but um, maybe they're just waiting for big government handouts like the, um, the car manufacturing industry did. Um, Look, let's get on to prices. Um, We've just seen so many different reports this week. Um, All of a sudden energy prices got on the front page. One particular report that did disturb me, David, was from the Australian Energy Market Commission. It was talking about it did its huge report, 350 pages, and didn't one seem to mention um, the lack of competition in the markets and some of the bidding practices. Um, Others focused on others focused on um you know network costs and um and the gold plating and and, and what have you um we the a triple c has been mandated to look at this um it identified six different areas what's the chance we are going to get a proper and decent response out of all this
2: none zero uh, look there are a couple of different <laughs> there are a couple of points to make about it that are really important uh the first one is a kind of philosophical and cultural point and that is that the John Pearce and the AEMC senior leadership are wedded to the idea that uh, the private sector provides the, is the best place to take risk. And and I philosophically strongly agree with that. But as you point out, the reality is that for households, 50% of the electricity price is set by a monopoly. And uh, that's in the wires and the poles. And the other 50% is set by Uh, an oligopoly. An oligopoly is a small collection of companies and particularly it's AGL and Origin and Energy Australia and in Queensland, the Queensland Government. And they basically control the uh, vertical integration of electricity, the generation and the retail. They're horizontally integrated into gas as well. And in the case of Origin, it also controls quite a portion of the upstream gas and, and AGL and Origin control the gas pipeline transmission contracts. So there really isn't that much scope uh, to get, you know, that, that's, that's quite a serious influence. But over and beyond all of that, the real reason that electricity prices have gone up so much is basically around the wires and poles, and they have overinvested. And that's nearly, they've not only overinvested, but consumption has fallen. Uh, and this really, there's no answer to this other than a write-off of the regulated asset base. And the only real competition, therefore, comes to the point uh, that uh, it, from distributed energy, from from customers uh, essentially becoming mm. competitors of the grid by putting in their PV and their distributed energy. And that's why we're seeing once again a, a big upswing in that. And Maria, I thought I'd ask you. I mean, energy synapse is a new sort of uh, consulting firm, and you've had a look at a lot a long look at demand response, but also I think you've been an energy buyer. How do you see the, the what, would, what would you do if you were advising uh, uh, big corporates in Australia as to, as to what, you know, what would we be talking to them about at the moment?
0: Listen, uh, the first thing I just want to say that it's not as simple as just one issue driving uh, the price increases. So yes, the gold plating certainly is an issue um, as is the lack of competition and the, um, the market power that we're seeing being exercised as a result of that. We've also got an aging generation fleet that is exiting the market. Uh, We've had policy uncertainty for the last decade that's really hindered investment in new generation. And at the same time as all these things are going on, we're also trying to transition to a distributed and, and renewable system. So it really is a combination of a whole heap of factors that have come together to create the situation that we're in now.
2: And high gas prices as well. Keep going.
0: And the high gas prices, absolutely. So um, in terms of what we're advising energy users, it's really all about creating a resilient energy portfolio, and I think that's the key to um, that's the key to actually getting through this um, and thriving in the
1: future. Maria, how do you create? what, What does that mean, though, when you're talking about a resilient portfolio?
0: Well, I guess it's about not having all your eggs in one basket. Um, So looking at firstly, how you're purchasing energy, um, looking at opportunities to perhaps do uh, renewable energy PPAs, which are looking to be more attractive um, in a lot of areas now than traditional contracts. It's about looking at energy efficiency opportunities, looking at opportunities for demand response, looking at what you can do on the network side of things. Um, So it's a really holistic approach
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the- Charles,
2: I thought I might add, you know, that I think one of the reasons why we're seeing so much, there's, Look, there's another two things to say that are important, one on the household sector there are a lot of households that won't be do, able to do anything. And, you know, I think we all sort of have a lot of empathy for that. It's just that I'm not in a position to really do anything about those households. And so there's not much more I can personally say about it. The other thing about business, though, I think is that a lot of business has seen the low electricity pool prices in recent years, and they're probably very under contracted in the first place. And that's why that they've been buying out of the pool quite, I heard, you know, like even big steel companies were buying on the spot market and, and thinking they were doing so well and then they get caught uh, all of a sudden and they're the people that squeal the loudest so I think this advice about having uh, you know uh, diversity in your portfolio and a, a multi-pronged strategy is, is is right on the money and consumers can do the same like households with with having some PV and some battery and still using the grid yeah and and do- I think there
0: is I just want to mention there is um a lot of opportunities to being spot exposed and that's one of one of the core offerings of our business is helping people in that situation. Now, the question is, almost ha- is always how much of your load do you uh, hedge versus how much do you float on spot? And it's, the key is really the, um, the load that you're floating on spot's got to be flexible. And if you have flexibility, you can, I mean, you can halve your energy cost. It's, it's a very effective strategy when used correctly.
1: You have your energy costs. That's really interesting, Maria. Um, actually, I'm just going to take this particular point in here just to thank our sponsors, um, Solar Ray Energy, um, who deal in um, energy management and also solar. Um, and clearly those sort of technologies are the ones that um, might be interesting um, for some of the customers. You mentioned the half your energy costs, Maria. I'd like you to expand on that because one of the things that really sort of um, interests me or intrigues me or even horrifies me is that I can't imagine electricity prices any higher than they are now. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, the price we're paying at the, um, at the, in, um, in, in homes and businesses is more than you pay for a diesel generator. Um, how, how can people reduce their price by half?
0: Uh, well, that was a comment specific to um, that piece of load that is spot exposed. So if you are effectively running around a pricing um, and of course have flexibility to do that by avoiding, um, You know a handful of the very highest uh pricing periods you can you can reduce your costs quite significantly um that's because we in the NEM we do see a very big range of prices um it's a very volatile market and just cutting off a a small number of um, high price periods has a very big impact on your cost uh you know for the quarter or, or for the year
1: and I guess what we're leading into there is demand response and demand management, and that's become more a bit of the flavour at the moment. There's a big push by AEMO to have um, about a hundred. Oh, I can't remember how many how many megawatts, David. Um, in by summer is it 150, 170, or is it not quite that much? Oh, I think not I've heard sure. them
2: talking about a, a, a thousand megawatts, and. Uh, well, Maria, again, you could talk a little bit about this, because I know this is what you pre- uh, presented to at the CEC Summit. Maybe you could just run us through what you see as the demand management opportunity uh, here in Australia.
0: Sure. Well, coming from uh, the large industrial sector, I mean, demand response has been one of my... It's been my bread and butter uh, for a long time in my career. And I guess the first point I want to make is that the NEM already has a huge amount of um, demand response through large industrials and they've been doing that through things like having spot exposure or having um, agreements with retailers or agreements with network providers. And we're only going to get more and more demand response um, as things like storage um, and smart energy management technologies enable more people to be participating. So the question we've really got to be asking is you know, how do we make the best use of these resources? And I don't think that that's something that we've done very well in the past. And I think it's still, we've got a fair way uh, to go on that point. Are we
1: are we heading in the right direction then with these ideas of these tenders that have been done by AEMO and um, with the New South Wales, Victorian and South Australian government? And and what sort of, what sort of demand response technologies are these gonna sort of draw out? Is it gonna be more of what sort of has already existed or is it gonna be new stuff?
0: Oh, well, I think in terms of technologies, I mean, we're going to see a mix, um, a whole range. And I think that's a really good thing because we need different technologies to be competing um, to enable the lowest price outcomes in terms of direction. I mean, yes, we are heading in the right direction in that now for the first time, AEMO is actually going to have visibility over demand response. So previously, with the kind of arrangements that I've spoken about, the only people that knew about that demand response was, you know, the, um, the energy user and their retailer or the network provider, depending on who's the contracting party. And it's very difficult to operate a market efficiently in that system when there's all this demand response happening to the side that you don't really know about. So, I mean, how do you know that situation that you're operating the market efficiently and that you're dispatching the people that you should be dispatching so we are moving um, where we should be in that the market operator should be aware of what's going on with demand response but the scheme does have some definite drawbacks and the first one is that it isn't really um, integrated into the market it's a separate system to the side and the other issue is that the payment for energy users is only capped at um, about $1,000 per megawatt hour and the idea of this program is that it will be used in emergency situations so essentially avoiding blackouts and I mean I can almost guarantee that the spot price at that time will be pretty close to $14,000 so it's pretty problematic from an energy user's point of view that for providing the same service at the exact same time, you're willing to pay a generator up to fourteen thousand dollars, but an energy user will be capped to a thousand.
1: That's interesting. So you're saying that is that in this new um, scheme by AEMO and the um, and the governments that they're proposing a cap of thousand dollars a megawatt hour?
0: Uh, yes. So so when you apply um, when you apply for this scheme, you basically nominate a price. That you will be paid for your usage and you are not allowed to nominate a price yeah. that's greater than
1: $1,000. Now, why would they do that? Because surely they know that um, wh- wh- why they're doing this for and what happens when um, the market gets critical?
0: Well, I'm not sure, you know, I haven't, haven't, heard, um, haven't heard an explanation that's made sense to me yet.
2: Mm. So, Charles, the other part about this, we talk about new technologies, but I mean, you know, I don't know how much technology is involved in actually turning your power on or off in response to a price signal. <laughs> uh, software, David, software. But I guess from the, this, we can look at aggregation of either business or residential to offer the same service. And uh, we heard Queensland Power already point out what a huge amount of demand, flexible demand response they have with the hot water load. Uh, in Queensland, you know, that in theory, if uh, all the houses had the right metres and things, you could turn the hot water load on or off at a particular times. Uh, um, Indeed, and, they've and, talked
1: about doing that during the day, and they're going to call it a solar sponge.
2: Yes, and, and I think this is this, these sort of uh, big things, With it shows the power of software increasingly as how it's driving uh, the market. And, you know, how we're moving around from this concept to some extent of demand response to a much more flexible system one of the little bugbears uh, and I don't know if you know about this is is as well as exposure to the uh, pool price business in general has exposure to monthly KVA charges it's very hard from the outside to uh, on maximum maximum power that is uh, during a month to understand how significant that is for business bills and therefore what opportunity there might be for something like a battery to as uh, to just um you know, cut out that share of bills. Do do you have any um, insights to offer on that area?
0: Yeah, well listen, demand charges um, are often a very big portion of a large energy users bill. I mean, they could be 20, 30% of your bill. Um, And I think we have to get smarter about how we design those kind of charges. Uh, So the worst ones are the ones where you pay for your max demand um, at any sort of any time that it occurs. Completely, regardless of what's happening in the market, and then of course you have ones that are marginally better, where it's only during the peak time, but it's still, you know, every every workday of the year, um, and then you get more targeted ones as well. But what I'd really like to see networks moving towards um, is what's called critical peak pricing, and this is something that a lot of the uh, transmission companies do in the U.S. So your transmission charge is generally based on. It might be the one hour peak or um, a couple hours that are the peak demand on that transmission network itself and then whatever you've used um, during that peak is what you pay for so when it's only um, a couple hours like that it's a lot easier for people to manage firstly and they don't necessarily have to be investing in things like batteries if they've got flexibility in their load so it's quite a cheap solution and it also uh, delivers real outcomes to, to networks because they are then managing uh, the peak demand of their system and perhaps deferring the need to upgrade the network.
1: Indeed, look, I mean, I, th- I think that's a, I think that's a fantastic idea. I, I'd, um, you know, looking at the definition of peak demand and particularly when the time of use charges, I actually looked at the. Um, the bill that was sent to me the other day and the various options um, from my um, electricity retailer, and it was talking about peak and shoulder charges, and there was actually almost no difference at all between the peak and shoulder charges. There were sort of um, nearly double the normal rate um, or the off-peak charges, yet this sort of peak period lasted from seven o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night.
2: Um, Mm.
1: It just seems to me like um, that's that's, um, that's more of a money-grabbing opportunity than anything. But
2: Absolutely. I do think we're seen we're seeing like with those Queensland schools that you covered off on uh, the queensland Catholic uh, edu- uh, Education System in Queensland, which seems to be you know like schools and a lot of factories uh, and things that have like uh, most a lot of activity happening during the day, not necessarily really large industrial customers, but what I would call uh, large customers, you know like one hundred uh, megawatt hour uh, megawatt hours a year up to like I don't know, a, a gigawatt hour. Uh, a lot of those people uh, can have a lot of opportunity to to do much more behind the meter have their business in the daytime and I do think uh, batteries actually uh, increasingly are going to make sense for those those guys um, as, as we move along I mean at least in the household sector the batteries are pretty much or if you use the Tesla barn thing it, it pretty much makes sense it doesn't increase your rate of return, but you are still getting a rate of return on the investment. And if it's, that's true for the household sector, it has to be more true, I would have thought for the for the business sector. Mm, indeed.
0: Well there's definitely opportunities for the business sector, it just depends. Um, if there's load that you can't move, then perhaps it would make sense to uh, invest in a battery. But the, the thing that I always tell people is try to figure out what load you can move first, because that's generally your your lower cost solution.
1: And presumably you're finding that people can move a lot of load.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, it's generally a lot more uh, than they anticipate, but it is, again, coming from a large industrial space, um, moving load isn't as simple as, you know, turning down an air conditioner in a, in a house or an office. Um, it sure. has real operational impacts on the business because you're essentially reducing or stopping uh, their ability to produce product for a certain period of time. So you've really got to understand the implications for operations, supply chain, and product management, and have all that come together uh, to create an effective strategy.
2: so this is this Charles is where you know as much as I think demand response is a very important tool uh, to have, in my ideal electricity system, you wouldn't need it because it'd just be endless amounts of power. I mean, one of the signs of having a really great economy is there's plenty of uh, low cost electricity whenever you need it, you know, and uh, in, in the end, that's where we're going to get to.
1: Yeah, but um, Maria, yeah, I mean, David says you, you may not need demand management, but in your presentation, you talked about how important demand management might be to, in, to help um, increase the penetration of renewables. How does that work?
0: Yeah, well, listen, we're moving away uh, from this old world where demand more or less does its own thing, and then we use generation to try to match that. And we're moving towards having more and more intermittent renewables in the mix. So I think it's going to be critical that we get better at utilising the demand side of the equation to help us manage some of that intermittency. You know, I think um, demand response is really a key piece of the puzzle that's going to allow us to overcome this energy trilemma and it's not just um again it's not just that reliability aspect there's a real affordability issue as well um, mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd like to um i guess what i what i suggested in my presentation was that we should be moving towards having market integrated um, economic demand response on the nem so what that would look like is people energy users um, or people aggregating their loads would be bidding directly into the NEM and competing with generators uh, in the dispatch process.
2: Yeah, and that would make the price much more visible just to start with, rather than we don't really know what price it is or what demand level when an aluminium smelter has to turn off. Uh, You know, visibility helps for a fairer market, I, I always think.
1: And there's so much, I mean, what that really struck me actually, Maria, when you were talking about the fact that people didn't know what was going on. I mean, there is so much about this whole market that no one seems to know what's going on anywhere because everyone's got home um, rooftop solar, no one knows how much and how much they're using inside the house. No one seems to know where the batteries are going in. No one seems to know about the sort of the PPAs and the other contracts that are being um, struck. There's very little clarity about the retail margins. Um, so, Charles, that's
2: one of the things, again, that uh, if you look at the workload uh, that the AMC uh, and the AMO have set for themselves Um, we do actually have some visibility in the end on PV because it all has to be registered for the most part with the with the clean energy regulator and so we we do see that down to the postcode level but actually batteries there is no uh, it, no market, no visibility on how many of those have been sold uh, or or where they've been sold or how they've been used. And so I'm pretty sure we're going to see, I mean, I love data and I think we're going to see more. I mean, you know, data leads to software and data and software lead lead to improvements. Uh, I think we're going to see some more onerous uh, requirements on people to report what they've got and
1: how it's been used. Okay. Hey guys, we've already travelled a very long time today. It's been a great discussion. I uh, thank you very much. Um, David, just very quickly, anything happening next week? Uh,
2: no, Giles. We're starting to move into reporting season for the companies. We've already seen Infigen, uh report low wind conditions in the June quarter, which, which we were aware of ages ago. We're uh, starting to see the quarterly reports coming through from the gas guys. Um, um, but we, as we start to move into reporting season, generally, we see the company results, I guess the big company reporting from AGL and Origin uh, will be uh, pretty important to see how much profit they're making and not only that, how, how much they're talking about making in the following year. Uh, other than that, I, um, you know, we're just keeping an eye on these new developments and hoping to see a few more come through.
1: Indeed. Okay. Well, thank you very much, David. And look, um, Maria, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for your time.
1: Great stuff, okay. And um, listeners, thanks once again for joining our little podcast. We'll be back again same time next week. But thanks once again to our sponsor Solarray and um, have a great week. Cheers.
0: Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.